It's Tuesday, April 4th, 2023, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution, but I'm not the only fellow who's doing podcasts these days. I encourage you to go to our website, which is hoover.org, and check out what we have to offer. Uh, to get there, it's very simple. You click on the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary. Scroll over to where it says multimedia, and then uh, up will pop where it says audio podcast. You'll find something like 17 podcasts and all. You can also sign up for our monthly pod blast, which delivers the best of our podcasts to your inbox each and every month. My guest today is Russell Berman. Russell is a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and a co-chair of Hoover's Working Group on Islamism and the International Order. At Stanford University, he's a member of that school's Department of German Studies and his Department of Comparative Literature. Speaking of departments, Russell Berman also served as a senior advisor on the U.S. State Department's policy planning staff during the Trump administration. Russell, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Happy to be here, Bill. So question I always ask people, I guess I'm always curious about this since I actually grew up in Washington, D.C. and spent about the first third of my professional life there. Do you miss the nation's capital? It was a real opportunity to be able to serve my country. There was a real, um, as you say here in California, high about uh, being there. It's exciting. Um, It's important that there's a State Department. It's important that people think inside of it. And I was happy to be part of that for a while. I don't like Washington, the city, that much. Uh, Uh, It's not a lovely place, but the um, being there at the heart of the government is um, an honor. Good. I think John Kennedy called Washington, what, a city of what, northern charm and southern efficiency? That's right. Our others call it uh, Hollywood for ugly people. Yeah, well, keep in mind, we do have Hoover fellows who like to rotate in and out of government, so don't completely rule it out if the opportunity comes up. No. Okay, let's. Uh, we're going to take a little tour of the world today, uh, Russell, and, and I want to start out in France, or what's France, I should say. Uh, the news out of France, uh, President Emmanuel Macron is actually not in his country right now. He is in China meeting with Xi Jinping, uh, which sparked the following headline in Bloomberg, Russell, which reads, quote, Xi courts Macron in bid to drive wedge between U.S. and Europe. Um, I'm curious if you see things that way, because you could also make the argument, Russell, that maybe Macron is in China trying to drive a wedge between Xi and Putin. Or Macron is in China trying to drive a wedge between himself and all his bad news in France. Yes, and we'll get to that in a minute. But let's let's start with let's start with the politics no, but, of him, geopolitics of him being in China. What's what's he trying to accomplish here? The Europeans, the West Europeans, the old Europeans, uh, Germany and France have always had a sweet tooth for um, relations to China. Uh, they um, do want to balance um, the United States. Uh, Macron in particular has been um, a proponent of finding an alternative to the United States, whether in Russia or in China. Russia is not a candidate right now because of developments in Ukraine, but uh, uh, Macron wants to keep his options open and, uh, and, 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 and therefore uh, and therefore, he's in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, from what, based on your reading of Man- Emmanuel Macron, is he possessed of the kind of ego where he thinks he can move Xi Jinping? Because it seems to me, Russell, that Macron has been down this road before trying to kind of beat sense into the head of one Vladimir Putin. He's trying again. Uh, no one ever accused Macron of having a small ego. Uh, he's not a modest person. Um, he uh, regards himself as uh, he's called himself Jupiter-like. Uh, the an imperial president, um, I, I, but I believe there there certainly is an element here of um, in, in 
trying to have a bridge to a power to his east. It used to be Russia, now it's China, as an alternative to being a perpetual minor player in the Western alliance. Mm-hmm. Now, I noted on that trip, by the way, that uh, Macron is uh, joined uh, on his journey by uh, Ursula uh, von der Leyen. Um, our viewers may, our listeners may not know who that is. She is the president of the European Commission. What is she doing on this trip? She's making, well, it's interesting. On the one hand, she wants to make it clear that this is not just France, but it's a European move. On the other hand, she ha- is on the record of being um, uh more critical of uh, Russia and China than Macron has been. So I I believe that Macron would also like to position himself as the the leader of Europe. Uh, uh, That used to be Angela Merkel. She is no longer the chancellor of Germany. Uh, There is no real similar figure emerging in Germany to take Merkel's place on the European stage. Macron would like to be her. Uh, you're leading right to my next question, which is really, who does lead Europe these days? Who is the alpha presence? And is this are we in a unique position here in post-World War II Europe, or has there been a similar patch of history where the European nations did not have one dominant leader among them? Well, I suppose the only dominant Euro- leader in Europe right now is Vladimir Putin. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, um, uh, no, there's uh, after, after um, Merkel's... Um, uh, retirement, uh, no one has emerged. Uh, at one point, people were thinking it might be Mario Draghi in, in Italy, uh, but he's uh, he's no longer in the running. Uh, 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 Schultz, uh, Chancellor Schultz in Germany is surely not a candidate and he's politically weak domestically. Um, uh, Macron is politically weak domestically, but he is strong psychologically. Mm-hmm. I noticed you didn't mention Great Britain. It's not Europe. No, not Europe. No, you don't. You it's, don't. it's 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 uh, this. We're 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 post Brexit. Okay. Uh, the UK is not a main a major player in the um, uh, formulation of foreign policy in the uh, in the European Union. This was the project I worked on when it was the State Department. This was before Brexit. Uh, Brexit was a possibility, but not yet a done deal. And the question was, well, what happens for U.S. foreign policy if Brexit takes place? What Brexit means, aside from any kind of economic uh, calculation, aside from the border in in uh, in with, between Ireland and Northern Ireland, what Brexit means is that the UK is no longer part of the foreign policy formulation in Brussels, and that means that the US lost its best friend inside the EU. Mm-hmm. That's so UK doesn't count. Right. So you mentioned uh, earlier that this is actually not a bad time for Macron to be uh, heading to another nation because of what's heading back home. Uh, here's what I think you're referring to. Two weeks ago, over a million protesters took to the streets of France to protest Macron's proposed pension reforms. This Russell would have raised uh, the country's retirement age from 62 to 64. Uh, the visuals were terrible. We saw burning piles of garbage in the streets of Paris. Uh, they had to close the Eiffel Tower. Uh, King Charles III canceled his trip to Paris. Uh, it's just an all-around mess. To explain a bit what is going on with France, uh, raising the retirement age of 62 to 64 does not sound unreasonable, but apparently it struck a chord with the French citizenry. It doesn't sound unreasonable to me, but um, this is the problem of pension funds uh, being underfunded. Uh, uh, raising it from 62 to 64 would uh, be a step in the direction of putting them on a sounder financial basis. In addition, France has a very complicated pension system with 
multiple systems and part of the reform is to homogenize them to make them uniform. Uh, and the um, French who are accustomed to a, a degree of, we would say welfare statism, uh, aren't prepared to accept this. And they see this as, uh, as a um, uh, step further down the road of neoliberalism. Uh, this is how they uh, caricature Macron. Uh, retirement at 64 does not seem draconian in a, from a U.S. point of view, but it's a big change in French culture. Uh, being a year away from 64 myself, it doesn't sound draconian to me. But um, when we look at this, maybe it's naive, but um, one question would be, Russell, is what you're seeing in France not necessarily a preview of what's going on in America, but what happens when you actually address an issue? Because here we are in the United States, and one thing um, the Congress, the White House will not do is they will not discuss any kind of uh, any kind of entitlement reform in, in the nation's capital. Social Security, for example, which, as you and I both know, can be fixed by doing what? Extending the age for getting Social Security. Yeah. Well, that's exactly it. This is, a, this is an effort to reform entitlements. The shape of the entitlements are different in France than they are in the United States. The culture in France is different than here. But in both cases, uh, you can't keep spending on something when you run out of money. Uh, and the, um, uh, the, 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 the Macron is facing the uh, hard job of reforming entitlements. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there is a political dimension to this as well. Um, th there have been a lot of transformations in the political landscape in in France. The old the old socialist social democratic party is negligible. Um, uh, in the last presidential election, uh, Marie Le Pen, the, the the extreme the far right candidate, won forty percent of the vote. Right. Um, uh, the uh, the pension reform means. Um, that the, the pensions of the current elderly would be protected. The, uh, the pension reform means that those who are in the working age are being asked to work two years longer. Uh, what's interesting is that, the, um, that those, uh, those demographics map differently onto the party landscape. It's the elderly who are big Macron supporters and who, who vote in a very organized way. They're retired, they don't have anything else to do, they vote. Uh, on the other hand, those in the, um, in, the, in the working age, 30 to 60, something like that, are disproportionately Le Pen voters. Uh, so Macron is taking from the Le Pen electorate to give to the Macron electorate. And how do you think this plays out? Uh, it, it's going to, contribute to further polarization in uh, in France. The, um, it's, it's, it is no longer unthinkable that Le Pen or her successor in her party could win. I mean, that's really what happened in Italy. Uh, right. uh, so it can happen in France too. Okay. Uh, I noticed at the same time that you have these protests going on in France, Russell, you have uh, next door in Germany, uh, two of the country's largest unions going on strike, demanding higher pay at airports and railways and underground services and buses, Lufthansa eventually grounding its flights. In the UK, you had a, a thousand border officers uh, striking several times, uh, again, uh, uh, similar to Germany as well. Is there something going on in Europe that I'm missing, or are these just sort of coincidences? No, these aren't coincidences. Uh, and I think we'll see... Uh, 
we may see similar developments here. The 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 issue is that um, inflation uh, is um, you know, hurts the wallets of wage earners, and uh, the, um, the the politics are different in the in the in the several different countries. But uh, if if wages don't go up to keep track with inflation, then the uh, the unions are going to go on strike. Now, now I, I think that's the, the crux of the matter. Uh, and the, the inflation is, as we know, a result of enormous spending uh, over the past few years, uh, beginning with the uh, COVID stimulus packages, but even more after that. Add to that the uh, spending associated with the war in Ukraine. Uh, I happen to be a supporter of that, but it is clear that uh, spending a lot on Ukraine adds to the economic woes of um, Europe and the United States. Mm -hmm. So again, a conversation that hasn't quite hit home here in the US, but uh, do you suspect a heightened conversation in France and Germany and the NATO countries about giving money to Ukraine, about sending arms, sending weapons? You know, I think the, um, the support for Ukraine still has significant public support, both in Europe and in the United States, but it is, it is, it is, it is less than it used to be. Right. Uh, people still want the Ukrainians to win, but they're having second thoughts about the costs. I should have emphasized that the that the uh, military support for Ukraine uh, as a cost is um, still much uh, smaller than the enormous deficit spending that's gone on in the past few years. Uh, nonetheless, yes, that's going to become an issue. Mm -hmm. Oh. About that war, do you think it's a war of attrition now, Russell? Do you think it's going to go on for another year or two? I think this is, frankly, a decision that could be made in 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 Washington and Brussels. My my recommendation is that we uh, accelerate the supply to uh, to Ukraine, uh, give them the more advanced weapons they need, and have them deliver a decisive defeat to to Russia sooner than later. If this is a year, war of attrition, if we're just giving them enough to keep fighting but not to win, then it will drag out, and eventually you're going to see our 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 stalwart European allies begin to drop off. So you're suggesting further supply to Ukraine, further strengthen their fighting power to bring Putin to the table. It's not clear to me that we had that this war had to happen. It's not clear to me that a different diplomacy might have thwarted Putin. Uh, prior to the invasion, but he did invade, and we're in it now. And if we're in it, we should be in it to win, and not to attrit. Interesting. Let's uh, shift countries now, and I'd like to take you to the Middle East, Russell. And I'd like to begin with uh, your thoughts on what is going on in Israel. President Biden a week ago telling reporters that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu won't be coming to the White House. In President Biden's words, "quote in the near term." Uh, Bibi Netanyahu then turned to Twitter and reminded his followers that Israel is, and I quote him, a sovereign country that, and again, these are uh, Netanyahu's words, quote, makes its decisions by the will of its people and not based on pressures from abroad, including from the best of best friends. So, okay, on the one hand, he is pushing back against the president, but he's also acknowledging the best of best friends. What What is going on between Joe Biden and Bibi Netanyahu? Because I I would, if you asked Joe Biden about this, he'd say, Bibi and I are friends. I've known him since I was back in the Senate. Um, I worked with him when I was in the administration with Barack Obama, kind of the go-to between the president and the prime minister. We get along fine. But what what's happening here between these two? That's, that's a, a good question. Um, 
I'll complicate it though okay. by talking about the Biden Netanyahu relationship um, uh, in parallel to the uh, Biden Mohammed bin Salman uh, relationship, right. uh, the uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Uh, in that case, in the Saudi Arabia case, I think there is considerable um, contempt and animosity. Bin Salman doesn't like Biden. Biden certainly doesn't like Bin Salman. And that spills over, unfortunately, into the foreign policy of the United States, which has led to an estrangement between Saudi Arabia and the United States. And I fear that that may not be undone or only with great, great difficulty in the future. Uh, the, um, the animosity toward bin Salman has pushed him toward China in a way that's going to be hard to backtrack. Um, that's the end of a 75-year alliance that was initiated by Franklin Roosevelt. Thank you, President Biden. Now, in the case of Biden and Netanyahu, um, I'm prepared to believe that they have worked together a lot, that there is some kind of, um, um, I'm not sure if it's friendship, but at least um, um, familiarity. They have a history. They have a history. And history. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen evidence of um, personal hostility. Biden hasn't used terminology with regard to Netanyahu, um, like, as when he talked about Saudi Arabia becoming a pariah state. Mm -hmm. We don't I have that, that kind right. of business. But we but but clearly there's a um, a coolness in the relationship between in the relations between uh, Washington and Jerusalem. Uh, on this point, I think that we see Biden um, uh, falling in line with the progressive wing of the Democratic Party that is uh, uh, that is uh, unabashedly anti-Israel. Right. So all of this is a response to uh, a Netanyahu plan to subordinate Israel's judiciary to the executive and legislature and the Biden White House then commenting on this is a terrible idea. I see this word popping up at headlines, Russell, which is meddling. Uh, is this a good word? Is the United States meddling in what is basically Israeli domestic affairs? Yeah, let's be honest. The United States has a long history of meddling in other people's domestic affairs. Uh, okay. the, I, think, I think the more interesting issue is you know, what was at stake in the proposed reform of the uh, the judiciary. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it was certainly less radical than the Democratic Party's proposal to stack the Supreme Court in Washington. Uh, uh, we, we can play this game too. What, what I find interesting is that the Biden comment about um, Netanyahu um, not coming to Washington for quite some time took place after Netanyahu had pulled the plug on the judicial reform. That right. is, the, the judicial reforms were very controversial, although there seems to be widespread agreement that some reform is called for. The point was that this reform was alleged to have gone too far. Uh, lots of demonstrations. Um, and at a certain point, Netanyahu said, okay, let's pause. Let's stop this for a while. Uh, let's try to find a compromise. And it's only after that that Biden said he won't be coming here for a while. I would have thought that if he, if he President Biden, were truly concerned with uh, the um, uh, developments in Israel, he would have said, that's great that he stopped it. Now's the time for him to visit. Right. 
Now, uh, our Hoover colleague, Peter Berkowitz, actually a former State Department colleague of yours, Russell, had a, a piece in Real Clear Politics the other day uh, in which he noted the following, that Netanyahu, when he uh, came back to office, his priorities were fourfold. One, prevent Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. Number two, crime reduction, safer streets at home. Three, strengthening the economy. Israel has an exorbitant cost of living and a housing shortage. And then fourth, normalizing relations with Saudi Arabia vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Abraham Accords. Nothing in here about judicial reform. Judicial reform has been a constant topic in Israeli politics for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, there's concern on the Israeli right, uh, similar to what one has saw in the past uh, United States with regard to an activist court. At, at stake is the problem of how justices, how judges are appointed in 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 Israel, and. Um, there's, there's again, a wide consensus that this should be fixed. Okay. Uh, Doug Schoen, he's a Democratic pollster, Russell. Um, he wrote a rather interesting piece in The Hill, uh, headline, Israel has become a defining issue for Biden's political legacy. And this is Doug Schoen's uh, contention, Russell. He's assuming that Biden now faces a divided Congress. There's not going to be much done on the domestic front for the remainder of his term in office. Um, so what really is going to matter more to him is where he stands on global democracy. So this would be, yes, the Middle East, uh, be Ukraine and Taiwan. Uh, but show notes, and shows a Democrat, by the way, he notes, uh, secondly, that Biden has considerable pressure within his party, and you mentioned this yourself, uh, to come down hard on Israel. And show's conclusion that Biden has to essentially make a choice on the world stage between politics and realpolitik. Do you, do you agree with that? I Between politics and realpolitik, um, uh, that is between his domestic political concerns and right. the 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 global national the global interests of the United States, uh, I think that's part of it. That's exactly what I meant by saying that he was caving into the progressive wing of the of the party that um, is hostile to Israel. Um, uh, the uh, the the suggestion that Washington should, as you put it, come down hard on Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, sure sounds like a version of what you said before of meddling in other countries' affairs. Right. The um, legacy that um, Biden is trying to build for himself uh, has to do with the notion that democracy is under threat and that um, uh, he wants to build an alliance with democracies. This, the, hence his, uh, so far, I believe, two democracy summits. Uh, now, uh, yeah, the first one was somewhat paltry. The second one was worse. Uh, with regard to the Middle East, the, um, the principle of the democracy summit is, uh, is intriguing. Um, again, these democracy summits are gatherings of representatives of all the democracies uh, in order to, um, um, to, to flaunt a, um, an alliance against uh, bad authoritarianism. Um, the problem is that in the MENA region, Middle East, North Africa, the only two countries that count as democracies are Israel and Iraq. Uh, and uh, that is from, from Morocco to the borders of Iran, there are no democracies except those two. This suggests to me that he's working with a foreign policy rubric that just doesn't fit the region. Uh, uh, it's not the case that we have no interests in the region. There are just no Democrats for us to speak with, except in those two countries. Uh, I believe that um, a lot of the world is still going to be dependent on Gulf oil for a long time. Uh, 
We may not like it, the environmentalists may hate it, but the point is that it's real. Uh, and if we cease to be the hegemonic power in the region, if we cease to be the power that provides security, somebody else is gonna do that. What the, the, the profound flaw in Biden's foreign policy is that he is pursuing a values-based policy that is pushing long-term friends away from us and into the arms of our adversaries. That's what happened with Saudi Arabia. Uh, this could happen with other countries as well. Um, it's hard for me to imagine that happening with Israel. That's why Netanyahu underscores that uh, they're, um, they're best friends. But um, uh, the United States simply can't lose sight of the fact that we're not the only game in town for many countries. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, shift over to the Saudis now, uh, since you did mention them, Russell. Uh, news on Sunday in Saudi Arabia and other major oil producers are uh, announced price uh, mm. uh, cuts in oil production, uh, totaling up to about 1.15 million barrels of oil per day. Uh, but also news last week, Russell, that Saudi Arabia has been granted status of a, quote, dialogue partner in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. This is an economic and security group. Uh, you know it well. I'm just explaining to the audience. It consists of China, Russia, and some former Soviet socialist republics. Explain what Saudis are up to here, Russell. Uh, first, the oil, but then secondly, cozying up to China and Russia by getting into this cooperation. Uh, the Saudis uh, are cutting oil production, raising the price. Um, they have an interest in earning more money, but right. a net effect is also to uh, increase the um, oil revenue that uh, benefits Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, this is exactly the opposite of what President Biden wanted the Saudis to do, what he asked for when he visited uh, Jeddah, uh, when was this last year. He, he did not give Ben Salman anything in return. As I said before, the relationship, the, the close tie between Riyadh and Washington that goes back to Roosevelt is coming apart. I'm not arguing that Saudi Arabia is flawless. I'm not arguing that Saudi Arabia is a democracy. I'm not arguing that Saudi Arabia is a paragon of American values. But I am arguing that this has been a very important strategic uh, partnership for nearly a century, and it's slipping uh, out of our hands uh, because of um, Washington politics and personal animosity between Biden and Ben Salman. Every time uh, Saudi uh, raises the price of oil, it's giving a very um, impolite message to the White House. Uh, I think that would be half a peace side, as uh, some people like to call it. Yeah. Uh, and really a problem for Biden in this regard, Russell. Um, you know, oil is uh, goes by seasonal increase prices. Uh, in the summertime, oil typically goes up about 30, 32 cents a gallon, I believe. I've seen some estimates that um, with this uh, with this uh, change in production, that's going to be about another 26 cents per gallon. So now people are going to notice about 55, 60 cents more on the gallon. That gets noticed by voters, as President Biden will tell you. But the, there's the other side of the, 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 um, the question that you posed earlier, and that is uh, the um, – uh, participation in the Shanghai group and uh, Saudis uh, drawing closer to Russia and China. Yes. Uh, uh, this is uh, what I described before as a discovery that uh, China, excuse me, that that we're not the only game in town, that in a multipolar world, uh, Saudi Arabia does not have to 
jump to the tune that Paul, that President Biden plays. There has to, I, I'm, I, I believe very strongly that the Saudis would prefer a strong relationship with us, but uh, the, the, the message that uh, Biden administration has been sending ever since the pariah terminology during the campaign um, is pushing the, um, the Saudis uh, away. I wish that Mohammed bin Salman were a little more temperate, were, uh, could uh, roll with the punches somewhat in the, in the way that uh, Netanyahu has been able to do in the wake of the, the, the recent Biden remark, uh, but um, he isn't. And this is something where, can, where we can both lose. Mm-hmm. Russell, can you explain to me what, um, the, what happened the behind the scenes with the Saudi-Iran rapprochement, uh, why the Saudis felt it was in their interest to restore relations with the Iranians, and how the Chinese got in the middle of this, how the Chinese were the ones brokering the deal and not the United States or some European power? There are a couple of different aspects to this, um, uh, to this news. Uh, one is whether there will be any genuine on-the-ground consequences in the Middle East. Will the Iranians now rein in the Houthis who had in Yemen who had been lobbing missiles into Saudi Arabia? Right. Um, I'm guessing they will. Will the Iranians uh, rein in Hezbollah in Lebanon? I'm guessing they won't. Um, will the Iranians uh, uh, rein in the uh, the militia in Iraq? I guess they won't. That is, they're going to do take steps that will allow for a tamping down of tensions for the Saudis, that means Yemen, but it has, has no relevance really to Iraq or, or Lebanon. So this is not the, the, um, the ultimate um, uh, kingdom of peace settling on, uh, on, the, on the Middle East. Uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia remain ideologically opposed to each other, uh, religiously opposed to each other, uh, economic uh, competitors. Uh, nonetheless, um, maybe the Saudis will, what the Saudis will get out of this is greater security uh, when those missiles from the Houthis disappear. The Iranians probably did this because they're uh, in dire straits uh, and they want to accommodate the Chinese. The Chinese are profoundly dependent on Saudi oil. One of the most foolish aspects of the um, American so-called pivot to Asia, that is withdrawal from the Middle East, is that if we are indeed in a, an existential competition with the Chinese, we should have our, our hand on the spigot that, uh, of their oil. But instead, we seem to be handing that over to the Chinese. We're not there yet, but we are now seeing China emerging in the Gulf as a key diplomatic player, which was not the case before. We were the key diplomatic player. And because of bad strategy in Washington and incompetence in the State Department, we have ceded that to Beijing. Mm-hmm. And the Saudis reportedly are considering uh, allowing China to buy oil with the uh, yuan instead of the dollar, right? as the UAE is already doing. That is, we have a de-dollarization of the oil market. This is, this is a potential catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Why, why did this, this, why? Is, this is a step toward the dollar ceasing to be the reserve currency. Okay. Why, why did the UAE do this, Russell? 
for the listen for the same reason that the uh, that the that the Saudis are moving in this direction. In fact, the UA would probably not do this with without um, without uh, Saudi um, uh, approval of some sort. Uh, China is a uh, a big um, trading partner in the in the Middle East. The UAE wants to sell its oil too. Uh, and there are doubts about the commitment of the United States to the region. Listen, over, over three administrations now, there have been signals that the United States is leaving. Uh, there was the um, uh, Obama's pivot to Asia. There was uh, President Trump's uh, uh, non-response to the missile on the Saudi um, oil refinery. And there was, of course, President Biden's um, you know, playing the violin as we left um, as we left uh, Afghanistan. This is not an indication of a, of a major power committed to the region. So it's not un, unexpected if some of the actors in the region, including our traditional allies, start to hedge their bets. So let's put you back at the State Department. What does the United States of America do now? How how do we go to how do we go to our friends and relations in the Middle East and convince them that we're there for the long haul and what what do we tell them? What what do they want to hear from us? Uh, I think it's hard to talk through the specific steps of damage repair, right. but the big picture would be providing um, uh, the Saudis with the defensive capabilities that they've been asking for uh, and committing to defending them if they face further attacks from Iran or its proxies. I think that's the big piece of the puzzle. Second part of it that is consistent with that would be to build on the Abraham Accords rather than to try to undermine them. Maybe the the two-party system right now, our two-party system mapped onto the Middle East is that the, the Democratic Party is betting on Iran with all its flaws, and a Republican Party could bet on the Abraham Accords, which are the key legacy of the Trump administration. That would mean a rapprochement between Israel and, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, uh, the United States should figure out what the Saudi price is for that and then pay it. Mm-hmm. Russell News report last uh, the other day that the Biden administration is considering an interim agreement with Iran that would include some sanctions, relief in exchange for Tehran, freezing parts of the nuclear program. Are you Are you buying this? Am I buying that the administration would float something like this? Yeah, I'm buying that, but I think it's a ridiculous idea. Uh, the um, uh, First of all, the, the Biden administration has been carrying out the sanctions only in a very half-hearted way. Uh, there are all sorts of loopholes that they've expanded. Second, the history shows us that the Iranians just don't respect the agreement uh, uh, and that it's it has turned out to be impossible to monitor it because of their the, the restrictions they put on the um, uh, international observers. All right. So what is the future then for Iran and its nuclear ambitions? I think that if they keep moving uh, toward getting the weapon, uh, and I'm not an expert who can tell you exactly where that red line is, right. uh, the, the Israelis will strike. The alternative is that the United States puts... Um, more pressure, more sanctions, and forces the um, the regime to to come to its heels. Remember, this is a this is a this is a this is a uh, country that has faced an, an enormous wave of demonstrations, and in response, the regime has murdered lots of people. 
um, lots of women. But somehow the Biden administration, for all of its feminism, really doesn't count, doesn't think that's important. It can continue to play footsie with them. I know you didn't hear much on the White House, uh, the recent news about Iranian schoolgirls being poisoned. You know, is that really as important as a nuclear deal? No, good point. Uh, speaking of strikes, Russell, um, the U.S. airstrikes in Syria against Iranian facilities in response to attacks on U.S. coalition forces. Tell us what is going on in, in uh, that theater. United States has a uh, um, very small troop presence there, but it is a kind of tripwire uh, that's that's important. And it has some uh, civilian contractors. Uh, a, an Iran-backed group um, targeted one of these American bases and killed an American contractor. Uh, in response, the United States uh, hit some Iranian targets. The American responses have been modest at best. Uh, it, the United States is not acting like a great power. It's not trying hard to break the back of the Iranian forces at all. It's just holding on to a status quo. Status quo in a country, Syria, that um, has suffered enormously. Uh, it's one of the human rights catastrophes of the, of the age. Uh, we should be working hard to bring down the Assad regime, not, um, not accommodating it. Uh, final question for you, Russell. We haven't talked much about Vladimir Putin today. Uh, what What is Putin up to other than, A, prosecuting a war that's not going very well, and B, I suppose, watching his back? Uh, I think that second point probably is a full-time job. I, I have no secret insight into, uh, into, into Putin's mind. You saw today that uh, Finland now has definitively joined NATO. That yes. is, NATO now, NATO now, really has expanded on the Russian border. This is what Putin was afraid of, uh, and, he's, and he's been able to accomplish it. I think that um, the relations between Russia and the West are just getting worse. Maybe Beijing will talk some sense into Moscow. Uh, that may be overly optimistic. But at this point, so much is riding on a Ukrainian victory, that it would be a tragedy if Washington were to back down. Uh, it would be the end of American credibility in the region, uh, and it would represent the successful accomplishment by Russia and in the back China of uh, reaching its goal of pushing the United States off the Eurasian landmass. That's the that's the end game. And also, I noticed uh, that during the three days of meetings between Xi Jinping and Putin, um, the photo op I found quite curious where uh, Xi, who must be a pretty tall fella, he literally towered over Putin. And that surely didn't look very czarist to me. If Putin thinks he's Peter the Great, he did not look like a czar in that photo. And it kind of does just look like the embodiment of a man who is in a who's the junior in a partnership. He's a junior partner. Do you think Putin's okay with being a junior partner to, to Xi Jinping? I think it must be very bitter, but I think that is really um, uh, part of what's going on. Nobody uh, can look at the war in Ukraine and, and think that it is a net positive. Uh, the, uh, the human suffering, the loss of life, the destruction of infrastructure, the human rights violations, the only perspective on Ukraine that could judge it a net positive would be from Beijing. Because what Ukraine is doing is, what the Ukrainian war is doing, excuse me, is making it absolutely clear that Russia is the junior partner in the Eurasian alliance. 
there's a uh, there's a report by um, by a visitor to um, to Beijing going back a few years now, said that in the halls of power in the Forbidden City, they talk about Russia as I quote Art Canada, that is a big empty space with lots of trees, and we the Chinese are the real real powerhouse. Ouch. That's where we are. Russell, we've covered a lot of geography in our little time here together. We have uh, gone to France, Germany, China, Russia, Finland, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Iran. Any other countries you'd like to add more on this little world tour? I think that's that's all I have to talk about right now. I just want to get the frequent flyer miles. <laughs> you and me both. Russell Berman, I enjoyed the conversation. I did too. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. Russell, you're not on Twitter, are you? I am. I'm Russell Berman SF. Okay, Russell Berman SF. There's also Russell Berman who writes for The Atlantic, I believe. I am not he. I stumbled across this the other day and saw a Russell Berman story on the 2024 election. I thought, that's Russell Berman. What's he doing to write about this? I'm, I am Russell A. Berman. Okay, so that's Russell Aber- that's Russell Berman SF. Yeah. I mentioned our uh, website at the beginning of the show, that's hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Russell Berman and his Hoover colleagues to your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics, talking California, I believe. Till then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.